0: Turn, if you would, this evening, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. We continue in our series in the Gospel of Luke this evening, and we've been here for, well, four years, I'm counting, and we're making our way through. And we've come to the close of Luke chapter 16 tonight. I couldn't help but think that today is a day of contrasts in terms of what we considered this morning and the wonderful expression of love and mercy in the text that we looked at together, but the Bible contains its warnings as well, and we will see that very clearly in what we read this evening and consider together. So, Luke chapter 16, we're going to... Read from verse 19, this is where we left off, and read the remaining, remaining verses of the chapter. Luke 16, verse 19. There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. It came to pass that the beggar died, and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And In hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and saith Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham... Have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. Beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went on to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Amen. May the Lord write His Word on our hearts, that we might hear it and receive it with profit. Let's pray. Our God, we come and desire the help that we need when we look at Your Word. We acknowledge that we are very weak in our minds and struggle to comprehend what we should. We pray that what is before us would be illuminated by the Spirit of God, that all of us would understand what the Lord Jesus taught here. And may it influence us as is needed. May it help us, the people of God, to understand the reality of eternity, but may it do the same to those yet unconverted. We pray for your help. We ask for your guidance, that it would not merely be a sermon, but a message from God. And to that end, we pray for the infilling of the Spirit of God to make much of your Word, of your Son, of your glory and majesty, and all that you are and all that you promise to sinners. So come and help and give that attentiveness to us all and drive away powers of darkness and those invisible forces Seek to destroy our souls and keep us from Christ. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage that we have read doesn't need for me to try and give some drama to it. It has its own drama. It stands largely unique in Scripture as far as the insight it gives into eternity there are other passages that deal with the reality of of what happens after death. It's not like it's the only passage that tells us that when we die, we go somewhere, but it gives color to that doctrine. It gives shades to it that other passages do not give. And so the Lord Jesus here addresses a very solemn topic that I hope none of us miss. Now, immediately we should be asking the question, why does Jesus speak on such a solemn subject at this point and juncture? What is it that has Him moving towards such a subject of what happens to men when they die? Well, if you recall, if you've been with us, He's been dealing with the subject of money. And money is one of those subjects that none of us can avoid. It's part of life, you don't get to cruise through life without some form of relationship with money. The problem is the kind of power that it can have, and we've already considered that power and the instruction of our Lord Jesus in relation to it. One of the things that is pointed out by the Lord Jesus in verse 14 is that among the Pharisees who are now hearing what He is saying, it says, the Pharisees also who were covetous heard all these things and they derided him. So he is addressing the subject of money in a crowd of people that, from what he is saying, have a wrong relationship with it. But in their own minds, they think that everything is well. And the dynamic that exists is one in which the Pharisees want nothing to do with the instruction of Jesus. In fact, they're doing everything they can to diminish His influence and to mock His teaching, and to remove power from what it is that He says. But what the Lord addresses gets to their hearts. There's no avoiding it. He doesn't miss the mark. And He proceeds then, rather than directly dealing with subjects like that, subjects that the Pharisees had a problem with, and money being one of them that we considered last time, he moves on then and he he, he gives this, this depiction, it's this, it's this narrative. Now, one of the one of the debates when you come to this passage is well, is it a parable? Is this a parable? Or is is it a real story? Did this actually happen as the events are recorded for us here? And you'll have good men on both sides. And be dogmatic about why it's this or why it's the other. And in in one sense, and I don't mean this to be to make little of the discussion, but there is a sense in which it's not really the point. Determining whether it's a parable or not, and that's all you get from this passage, comes up short. Because whether you conclude that this is a parable or this is an event that actually occurs, the Lord Jesus is not misdirecting. The point is still the same. He's not illustrating a scenario that doesn't exist. All His other parables pretty much give to us a sense of, 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 of real life. They bring us into a real sense of something we can relate to, something that may actually happen and occur. And so if we were to imagine that the Lord Jesus is inventing a place called hell and just illustrating and saying, like, hypothetically, there might be a place like this where people go after death and bring such horrific language and horror to it, and yet it doesn't exist would be would be false, wouldn't it? I mean, he would be really teaching something we would come away and say, but that's not so. I mean, why are you trying to bring fear into us with a, with a scene that doesn't exist? I think there's, there's an argument for it. You know, it follows much of a kind of parabolic manner. The argument, of course, says, well, he uses a name. He, he, he never in his parables does he actually refer to someone in the parable being named. But here we have the poor man being named Lazarus, but I think there 's an answer to that if if we take the position that it is a parable, quite simply in ancient times when, when you had a, a scene like this you 're telling a, a story and you have de- various individuals and you decide to leave some unnamed and then you give the name to other by that you 're implying which one is important you 're you're, you're elevating saying this is the person that matters and I was reading and thinking about this, and in one sense, the naming of Lazarus, if it's a parable, is is another way of Jesus saying, the memory of the just is blessed. The memory of the just is blessed. There's value in them, and they're valued by God. So, Lord gives details here that pack a punch intending to get the attention of the Pharisees and you you ask yourself, well, what's motivating him here? Is, Is it because he hates them? Or is it because he has a love for them and a compassion for them? What do we do when people are in trouble? How do we assess our response when someone is in trouble? If they're in trouble... And we do nothing. Is that love? Or if they're in trouble and we act to try and rescue them, is that love? And you know the answer to that. The warnings given by the Lord Jesus Christ are an expression of compassion. What's put before us here is, is not is not easy reading. And before I proceed, I I want Christians here to, to never forget this passage because it does illustrate more vividly than any other, perhaps, what happens when men die without Christ. And it is easy for us to traverse through life And be polite to people and not think about where they're going. If the passage can't motivate believers, how on earth will it ever motivate the unbeliever? So tonight I want us to look at what I've titled A Portrait of Hell. A Portrait of Hell. The Lord Jesus paints a picture from verse 19 and following. And there is a focus. I mean, there's, there's reference to, to heaven, to Lazarus going to heaven, but he's, not, he, he's part of the story, but the real, the real driving force is helping the Pharisees to see where they stand. They're not in the role of Lazarus. They're in the role of the rich man. And so the undergirding sort of point is, you that I'm addressing, you wealthy Pharisees need to pay attention, especially to the rich man that is narrated here in this portion. Consider firstly that it is impartial. Hell is impartial. We said in recent messages that the Pharisees were desperate to communicate one thing above everything else, and that is that they had the favor of God. They needed that. They needed, they needed society to believe that they were the favored ones. Their whole credibility hinged upon others believing that they had God's special favor, not just in terms of being Jewish, but in this particular sect called the Pharisees that were so devout and so particular in their manner of living They wanted to see the benefit. They wanted the world to see the benefit of that. And one aspect that was in their control was the the kind of belief that still exists among us, in which we, we look at people, and when they are materially abundant, when they have lots, there can be this thinking, it's very easy to fall into, well, God has been very good to them. and and favored them in a certain fashion. And then we see someone without, and we say that they are without the favor of God. Now, the the Jews had that. That's not a modern response to what we see in the world. That was there then, and it is true today. Of course, the, the, the buffer to that, and I say this as an aside, the buffer to that, every time you start thinking that way, or your mind trends in that direction, look, they have this, God has really blessed them. They have nothing. God is not blessing them. I want you to remember that Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. He had nothing, materially. And yet he was more favored than anyone by God. So because they put such weight on convincing the world that they were favored... And because they saw that money was a way that they could control that image, Jesus says in verse 14, as we considered already, they are covetous. They're always clamoring after more. And Jesus then proceeds to put this scene, as we've already said before them. And you have two men, and they experience partiality throughout their lives. And verses 19 through 21 it's the contrasting experience of their lives. Verse 22 and following is the contrasting experience of their eternity. So, in life, look at it. What are we told about their lives from verse 19 and following? There is a certain rich man and so on. You read this and you see, first of all, one is rich in life, the other is poor. This is the contrast. One lives in a gated home and the other lives at the gates. One is covered in purple and fine linen, the other is covered in sores. And just just so you're aware, we don't see that with our modern technology and the way clothes are made and colored, but purple was expensive then. How they dyed and what was used to make the dye and dye the clothing purple was was, was, was difficult, and it was expensive to get those materials. And so, really, if, if, you're, if you're dressed in purple, it's not just the fact that you have the ability to do it, you're also communicating that you have the ability to do it. It's, it's, it's a way of, of showing the world that I have wealth. And so if you imagine someone who's, who's dressed in, you know, all sorts of maybe very precious uh, materials and, you know, gold, all lots of jewelry, and other things that you can look at and say, you know, that's really, that's really, really expensive. It's not just the fact that they can afford it. They want people to know they can afford it. The opulence is, is intentional. It's part of the message. A man walks into the community clothed in purple... Without saying a word, everyone knows who they're dealing with. They're dealing with someone with substance, with means. But like I say, while he is covered in purple and fine linen, the other is covered in sores. One fares sumptuously every day. The other is longing for crumbs. One man dies and everyone notices, except the angels. Another man dies and no one notices but the angels. It's a tragic scene, and far too commonly lived out in this world. People with means who ignore those that are without, and the suffering of a world of imbalance and cursed by the fall. Lazarus gets more pity from the rich man's guard dogs than he does from the rich man. They come and lick his sores. But what happens after death reveals more truth about men than all the eulogies that could ever be spoken? We can get up and say a lot, and I'm quite sure that that day that the rich man died, there were all sorts of people willing to get up and say nice things about him. And they would stand and say all the things that they're meant to say. I mean, he had five brothers, and there seemed to be some sort of relationship between them, given his concern for them. You see, that, even that's a contract. I didn't think of that. I'm just thinking of it now, the contract. He has, he has family around him. He has five brothers around him that he's close to, and, and the, the poor man has no one. He has to be laid at the gate of stranger, hoping for some mercy. So the rich man has power. He has connections. But hell doesn't care. Hell doesn't care. It's impartial. It swallows him up like he's the most ordinary man that ever lived. (laughs) It just doesn't care. And that's what people don't see. They, They don't stop in their lives to think about the fact that we're going into eternity... And where we're going doesn't care largely about all the stuff we care about here, the things we're told to care about, all the things that seem to matter, what do you get in your SATs, what do you make per year, what do you, you know, all the stuff, all the criteria, and you know, it's, I'm not saying it's all wrong, don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying like, you know, I don't want the kids to go away and say I'm not going to study, it doesn't matter, (laughs) Because it's a tool, that's what it is, it's a tool not to boast but to be used by God. God gives you intellectually and in other ways, go and use it for His glory. But, but that's not how we're measured when all is said and done. We don't, we don't get to go in there and present a resume and say, look how impressive I am. Without batting an eye, as it were, hell just swallows up. The souls of men with no thought about what you have succeeded in and done. So be careful about what you value. Be careful, be careful about navigating through life and valuing all this because these, these Pharisees valued the wrong thing. This is what Jesus is pointing out to them. They valued the wrong thing. They, they, they valued the opinions of men. They valued... Their status and wealth, they valued the high positions and seats. And all of it meant nothing, ultimately. But secondly, I want us to see that hell is indisputable, indisputable. When we read through a passage like this, it's easy for us to start looking for it. Let me step back for a minute. if we actually consider the reality of eternal punishment as the bible reveals it it is it is it is really difficult to to be at ease with it not that i'm saying we we fight against its existence or we try to pretend that it doesn't exist i'm not saying that it's it's the It is, it, it, it is really hard to get your mind around endless suffering. And if you haven't wrestled with that, it's because you're not thinking. I mean, you're simply not thinking. You're not considering the fact that when people die, that's it. And God's Word reveals they go to a place of constant, endless, relentless suffering. so I want to underline before we proceed with this idea that it is indisputable. There's no no getting away. As unsettling as it is, as challenging, as sobering, as heart-wrenching as it is, the doctrine of this passage needs to be underlined. I I can't pass through it merely by looking at the language and ignoring that. It's pointing out the fact that people suffer if they die without Christ. Now, now many, many, because they don't want to think about it, they deny it. That's the easy way to, to deal with it. And many of the religions of this world, they dismiss it altogether. My wife was brought up in the kingdom hall. Jehovah's Witnesses, they just dismiss it. Dismiss the doctrine of eternal punishment. If you aren't a Jehovah's Witness, a good, obedient JW, you, you die and you're snuffed out. Just snuffed out you're good, obedient JW and you're not one of the 144,000, then you'll live in a paradise earth. The 144,000 will go to heaven, so they say. And it's not just the JWs. You could go on all sorts of various groups and uh, even those within forms of Christianity, apostate Christianity, they, they deny a literal hell. But what does Jesus say? Verse 23. when he's he's giving us the details, he says, and in hell, the rich man is in hell, he lifts up his eyes. In hell. The strongest argument for the reality of hell, the the indisputable aspect of a place that people go to when they die, where they suffer, without relief, comes from the lips of the Son of God Himself. That lest he be misunderstood, I want you to understand this is the one who who looks over men and and weeps over them, who has compassion on the multitude, who on the cross, as we thought of this morning, when they're nailing him to that Roman cross and they're, they're punishing him so cruelly, he is saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So this is not a harsh individual. This is not a careless individual. This is not someone whose heart doesn't beat. It's not. He's not numb to men. But he's telling these Pharisees that this rich man went to hell. Now, what else do we know about the rich man that we've we've considered already? we, We know this. He was religious. He was religious. I mean, to some degree, I mean he he looks at Abraham and he calls him Father Abraham. He's a Jew. And probably, probably a Pharisee. I mean, that's the imagery that's being presented here. Someone who is devout to the Jewish religion. And he's looking at Abraham, you're our father. You're my father. I have covenant privileges, covenant blessings. I have life and salvation because I was born a Jew. And I've paid into the synagogue, into the temple. I've been faithful in my duties. But he finds himself in hell. Oh, those are two words you don't want to have to be said about you. In hell. I mean, we don't, we don't want it. We, we never want when someone says, where is so-and-so, to, to have to say, in hospital. That's, 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 not, that's, that's not pleasant, is it, to have to say such-and-such such is in hospital. Because they know that's not good. Not everything's well when you're in hospital, generally speaking, unless you're going to give birth to a child or something. But in hospital, you don't like saying that. You do everything you can to try and keep yourself out of that place, don't you? You know, and, and your doctor tries to help you. <laughs> and they start telling you, you need to, you know, your blood pressure's high. You know, you don't want to end up where? In hospital. You know, whatever, they're telling, you're giving you counsel to avoid being in hospital. But Jesus, Jesus is taking this to a completely different degree Forget about being found in hospital. What about if you're found in hell? This is a real place. In Matthew 13, verse 41 and 42, he he speaks about it being a furnace of fire. A furnace of fire. In Mark 9, 47 through 48, he talks about those being cast into hell fire. And there are many other references that you'll find in the Gospels. And unless you're willfully blind, like you're deliberately saying, I don't want to believe it, the only conclusion you can come to is that hell, it's indisputable that hell is a real place. It's a real place, it's just as real as heaven. And we don't go about denying that, do we? At least we're not so swift to toss it out the window. Well, how convenient, isn't it? Heaven. In heaven. that's where we place everyone. But Jesus also places people in hell. But why? why Why would he do it? Why would God send people to hell? Is it it too harsh? One thing we don't want to admit, especially when it relates to ourselves, is the necessity of punishment. (sighs) Now there are contexts in which we understand it. There's contexts in which we are very ready to understand it. And I've used this before, but let me use it again since it's applicable. But when people are struggling with the idea of punishment, all you have to do is bring them to a a courtroom scene in which they're the ones that have suffered. So you bring them to a courtroom scene in which someone is on trial because they murdered or did something else horrific to a sibling or a parent or a child or whatever. You bring them there, and you say, well, well, now what's the judge to do? Is punishment just? What should be the sentence? And, and generally, you'll be, whatever the law can bring upon them, and there may be cases in which you're looking at it and say, the law is not even sufficient. It comes up short on what just punishment should be here. And so you get it, you have it, you have it. you do you're wired for a sense of justice, you, you know it. You, you can't just look at suffering going on in the world, children suffering, other innocent people suffering, and crimes going on, and then say that if you ever if the, if the judges were all good, they'd let them all go scot-free. I and mean, you know that's not right. We all know it. But then it comes to standing before God and being judged. and We start manipulating in our minds what He should do to justify why He should, if He is a good judge, He would let us off. I mean, that's not how we think in this world, but in that realm we begin to turn the tables, change everything around. But, but you're wired, because you're made in the image of God, you're wired in a certain way. And so what you see is real in this world, that good judges actually give punishment for crimes. The good judge is going to do the same. Now the difference is this, that when we're thinking of God as judge, you think of Habakkuk, where he speaks of God being of purer eyes than to behold evil. He, he is of purer eyes than to behold evil. And cannot look on iniquity. The, the nature of God is repulsed by wrongdoing. Are you repulsed by wrongdoing? Well, maybe maybe some wrongdoing, but generally today in America, you know how we feel about wrongdoing. We love being entertained by it. We do. We sit. We sit and watch wrongdoing all the time. We love simulated wrongdoing. You know, crime scenes and shows and everything. We 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 love it. We're drawn to it. We, I, I get it. I sense it as well. There's there's certain appeal. It's easy to feel a sense of, of, of being drawn and making light of it. But God can't look at it. That is, He can't look and ignore it. He can't. He's not ever entertained by it. God is holy. And if we could see the world and see its crimes and see the wrongdoing from the perspective of God, we would see it differently. That's what happens when you get saved, you know, when you become a Christian. You say, what's, what's a Christian? Well, you could describe a Christian in different ways. But one thing is true about a genuine Christian is they begin to see the world more like how God sees it. That's what happens. There's a shift going on. I know it. It was true of me. I was just... 19 years old, passing through life, and I valued it myself as, I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. And others would affirm the same and say, you know, nice young chap, whatever, you know. (laughs) I would be the same for many of you. But when I was converted, my understanding of myself turned instantly in that moment. You no longer see yourself like you used to see yourself. You, you begin, you begin, not entirely, but you begin, you begin to see yourself a little more as God sees you. And that's why you're onto Jesus Christ. <laughs> see, before you thought you were okay, so you could avoid Jesus. You don't need Jesus. As soon as you start to see yourself the way God sees you, then all of a sudden, where is Jesus? I need him now. So we have to be careful. When we're reading the passage like this, the last thing I want you to do is to go away and say, this is irrelevant to me. This isn't a real place. It is. It is very, very real, indisputably so. And the Lord Jesus is the one who argues the case for it stronger than anyone else. And we look at God and we must realize that this is just. This is just. Now, this particular scene, it becomes somewhat easier for us to see it because of the contrast. There's such polarizing aspects to the characters in the parable or the narrative given by Jesus that... That we could see it. Well, you know, he was so cruel to the poor man and ignoring him and all the rest. And and he deserved it. He deserved it. Well, he did deserve it. That's why he's there. But everyone deserves it. Everyone deserves it. And your problem is, you you look... (laughs) Oh, listen to me. You might say, I would never pass a poor man like that. I would never let him lie at my gate and not put down a hot meal for him or help him in some way i would never do that in other words i have a heart for the poor maybe so but but if you're ignoring jesus christ then you you you're doing worse because the rich man ignoring the poor man is a sinner ignoring a sinner But when we ignore Jesus Christ, we are ignoring the one who is impeccable, who never did wrong. And he uh, himself, in one sense, is calling out, crying out for your attention in a certain sense, and you're ignoring him. So the crime is infinitely worse. To ignore Jesus Christ is far worse than ignoring someone in poverty. Both are sinful, but one, by degree, infinitely more so. So, I, I hope we understand. I hope at the very least you go home and you say, I know hell's a real place. Can, can, I, can I make the point that this, it should in some way motivate, and I'd be, I'd be careful here, but, but it should in some way motivate our evangelism. It's not the only reason. We're not driven solely by the fact that men are going to hell. But I do think it should be a factor. And I think we can argue that case from Scripture. There, there's, there's indications of that in the Apostle Paul, isn't there? Because, because he could wish himself accursed from Christ for his kinsmen according to the flesh. It's like I'll take I'll take the judgment, I'll take the separation from Christ, and all that comes with that, that's how my heart bleeds for my fellow kinsmen. That's a hard place to get to. But that's like Christ, because that's what Christ did. That's exactly what Christ did. It's a Christ like spirit, isn't it? It's seeing the suffering. It's Jesus seeing the agony seeing the, the wrath, seeing the judgment that, that is deservedly coming upon men and women. And he moves in to stand as a substitute, to bear the wrath, to bear the judgment, to swallow up all the punishment that they deserve to extinguish, as it were, the wrath of God, that they go free. Thirdly, as we consider the portrait of hell, it is indescribable. And I use that carefully because this will sound a little like I don't understand what indescribable means, (laughs) because it does describe hell. But I am purposefully using this word because the language isn't sufficient. It's it doesn't begin to scratch the surface, does it? How is hell represented here? How do, we, how do we see it? There's lots going on, but I want to just glean a few things that help you understand how, how sobering this is. First of all, it is a place of separation from people. Verse 25. But Abraham said, Son... Remember that thou in thy lifetime. So, so Abraham, just pointing. point this out, Abraham's not denying the fact that he's Jewish. You're Jewish. You were circumcised on the eighth day. But it's not enough. Remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and Lazarus, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou wert tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. So the rich man is looking for relief, and he is told that that it's not possible. There's a separation here, a great gulf fixed, and it works both ways. So that even, and I don't, know, I, don't, I don't know if Lazarus is where, we're not told of Lazarus being conscious of what's going on here, but, but let's, let's hypothetically imagine that he is, there would maybe be a sense in which Lazarus is saying, let me go and help him. But, but the message is, no, he can't go, nor can you cross this way either. It is separation. It is a place of separation. This man who was at your gate... Every day, this man you were familiar with that you purposefully ignored, this man now cannot come near you. You're separated. You will never be in the same place together again. Separated. This is true even of the brothers, you know, he's, when he's longing for them as well. Verse 27, where he says, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren that, they may, that He may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So, so they can't, he, he can't get to them either. He's not getting out of there. He is separated from those in heaven. He is separated from those in life. It's separation. The Lord Jesus depicts us elsewhere. In Matthew 25 is sheep and goats. They're separated sheep are on the right hand, the goats are on the left. They're separated. So we're not, we're not this idea that ultimately we're all going to end up in the same place. It's not taught in Scripture. It's not taught there. I remember going to witness at the university in Northern Ireland. And I was off on Tuesdays at that time. And I would go on Tuesday afternoons to the university and I would linger around the main foyer of the, of the university and sit down beside students who were between classes or waiting for friends or whatever reason they were sitting there and talk to them, share the gospel with them. And there was, just near that main foyer, there was the, 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 where the chaplain's office, office. And at different, you could see, you know, the, the, the schedule for the different chaplains. At certain times, you know, it was the Methodists would be there, then there would be the Presbyterian there, and there would be maybe, you know, whatever, different religions, different sects even within the Christian church, all there. And a day, one day I was there, and I passed by and looked in to see who was there, and it was a nun. <laughs> and I got talking to this nun, started witnessing to her, sharing the gospel to her, and, and she believed in universalism. She believed that ultimately... God would, would, in a loving way, gather everyone and bring them all into heaven. We'll all eventually be in heaven. And I looked at her and I said, including Judas Iscariot? And she looked at me, sort of like she didn't know what to say. <laughs> but they, they, this is someone trained in the church. I don't know how, where she was trained or how she came to that conclusion, because it's not, it's not the teaching of the church, the Roman Catholic Church but she convinced herself that this is how it's going to all fall out. But it's not. It's not. There's separation. Separation. Let me then say to you, Christian, if you're going to witness to someone, if there's someone you're burdened for, now is the time. There isn't another time. It's here now or never. It's also a place of suffering great pain. Look at verse 24. When the rich man, we'll read from verse 23, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. He is suffering. The man, the man who wouldn't go from his house to his gate with a meal for a man now wants him to go from heaven to hell with water. He wants even the slightest relief. It would seem to indicate then that hell is a place of perpetual thirst, which may gives you an understanding of, of Christ's cry on the cross, I thirst, as he's suffering for his people. And you've had that feeling, you know, when you're really, really, really thirsty. And it seems that he is so thirsty, it's, it's like the first thing in his mind to give relief to him. Just, just a drop of water. Dip the tip of his finger in water. Just dip I'm asking for the smallest mercy. Oh oh don't you see that it's now or never? I mean this isn't a big request, is it? It's just a tip just dip the tip of his finger in water and place it on my tongue. That's that's the mercy he's looking for. And the answer is no. There can be no more harrowing reality than what is here. That, that in this life, you've received your good things, you've, you've been blessed. We thought of it this morning, the kindness of God to men, and we know not that we, we, are, we are ignorant of this fact that the goodness of God should lead us to repentance. It didn't happen in this man's life. His whole life was blessed He was born into into a Jewish family so that the oracles of God were put before him from his youth. He doesn't remember a day where he didn't know the Scriptures. He was made to memorize the books of Moses and to keep them in his heart. And he was taught through all the schools. And again, maybe he is a Pharisee. Maybe he's been well-educated in all the rabbinical teachings. And he knows it. He knows it all. But he did not know how to show mercy in his life. And so now he's in a place where he's going to receive no mercy. Ever. It's also a place of sorrow due to memories. A place of separation, suffering, sorrow. Look at verse 25. And Abraham said, Son, remember... Remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But thou is comforted and thou art tormented. You know, hell would be a whole lot easier to cope with if, if you lost your mind. If you lost the faculties that you have in this life, the senses, if you could no longer see or, or taste, or or touch, or remember, or if you lost all of that. If you lost all of that, then you could you would tolerate it because you'd be numb to everything that's going on, but but you don't. You don't lose your senses. You retain them. You retain your senses and your memory. And Abraham says, son, remember. Remember. Cast your mind back and look at your life. See the way you were blessed and favored and how God kindly took care of you and nurtured you. And so the memories come not in a way where you can look back. You've got memories. You've got memories. You can look back and glean and be comforted and encouraged by them. But, but these memories don't bring any comfort. These, these memories actually add to the suffering. Because he's thinking about all the lost opportunities. He's thinking about that Jewish man who, who, who sought, who was a faithful man who came and taught him and, and tried to appeal to him that there was more than just externalized religion. There were no doubt people in his life who were, who were real followers of God, who knew God, and they would instruct and they would appeal and they would press, and he, he knew the Scriptures and perhaps he had pangs of conscience when certain passages were read in his hearing. and he, And he felt like, I know, I know that I know that I'm a hypocrite at heart. I know it. But he silenced it. And all those memories come flooding back. <laughs> they come flooding back and they, they bring no comfort. They just add to the agony. Where you think about it, you start thinking about it. Like, like you could. I mean, if you if you end up in hell, it will be son, remember. Remember how you sat and heard preachers appeal that you should repent and believe the gospel. Remember how you were taught and instructed with tears flowing from your mother, with prayers echoing in your ear from your father. You, remember. And you did nothing with it. You just ignored it. And so, yes, there's there's no there's no dementia in hell. No, you'll remember. Even if you die with dementia, you're going, this all, you die with dementia, rejecting Christ, your memory is going to come back and be as healthy as it ever was. And you'll remember. It's a place of slighted hopes as well. Verse twenty four. What's he desiring? Have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. That's rejected. Verse 27. I pray thee. Oh, here's a man who's praying. It's like he's offering a certain prayer. He's he's looking at Abraham as representing God. And and he's, he's appealing. That thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But again, it's rejected. It's rejected. Even when he makes what he thinks is a logical appeal, verse 29, Abraham saith unto him, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the Bible. They have the Old Testament Scriptures. That's what God has given to men to keep them from coming here. What has God given to keep you from going to hell? His Word. They have that. And so, but, but you can see him is his, his, the wheel is turning, where he says, Nay, Father Abraham, how brazen. But if one went on to them from the dead, they will repent. <laughs> you know, there, there's a subtle charging of God here, isn't there? There's a subtle charge against God, a bit like Adam in the garden, the woman thou gavest me. In other words, it's kind of your fault, because the woman you gave me is the reason why this all transpired. But, but you still have the same thing here. You have the same, in which he is saying, no, 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 God has given his word, but, but that's not enough. If, if God would only do this, man would never come here. In other words, really, it's God's fault. It's God's fault. So, it is responded to him. The response is, verse 31, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. A miracle will make no difference. And that's true. I mean, it, we imagine these things and make a difference. Sometimes we imagine, for example, and, and it's not without merit. It's not like it has no Value, but we think, well, someone has died suddenly. I, I, I imagine, you know, if he has these five brothers, it would appear to me that he, he died a relatively young man. He wasn 't wasn't necessarily old. It, it would seem like maybe he was not all that old, and he dies suddenly. And you might have imagined, well, here is the brother has been taken and they've all gathered for his funeral, well, maybe the knowledge of his brother's departure may have sobered the the remaining brothers. I mean, that's kind of what we hope sometimes, that that funerals will work to sober the minds of men. But that hadn't worked. That hadn't worked. He's in hell, and the five brothers have had... You're going to have that knowledge of their brother's departure. It hasn't worked. He's suggesting raise Lazarus from the dead response says, no, it won't make any difference. If you don't hear the word, you can't be saved. This is what God has set before you. Stop stop looking for something else that God hasn't given. You're going to perish if you do that. So it's a place of slighted hopes. You can have desires there, and you do. You, You go to hell, and clearly then you have these desires. Oh, I would like this to happen, I would like that to happen, and none of them get satisfied. think it's bad in this life to have unfulfilled desires? At least you have a hope. There, there's none. Finally, it's a place shorn of mercy. Verse 26a. Beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed. So that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. There's, there's a gulf fixed. There's, there's, no, there's no way that mercy can come to you. There's no experience of mercy that you can have. Nothing that you desire is going to occur. There's no mercy. You're looking for mercy? Dip the tip of his finger in water and cold my tongue? No. No mercy. So this is how Jesus illustrates, this is how he portrays hell. It also to a prosperous crowd of religious people. What's sitting before me tonight? A prosperous crowd of religious people. He didn't go to the down and outs and preach a message like this. He stood before the wealthy and the respectable and the religious and he warned them of hell. So take it to heart. There is nothing, I repeat, there is nothing Nothing worth risking the damnation of your soul. The arguments of playing games with spiritual things, the idea that you can sleep around and live a double life, or that you can placate God by attendance at church on Sunday, while you live a compromised, contrary life to Scripture, the rest of the week—the idea that you can pursue wealth—and when you're blessed, you think, "Well, God must be with me." All these—all these ideas are trashed right here, and, and we're left with this sobering reality. Where are we going? Where are you going? Because you're going to die. You know that. And it probably will take you by surprise. Even even if you die in your 70s or 80s, maybe even in your 90s. There, there, there are people in their 90s, they, they die, and it's still taking them by surprise. They get accustomed to living in this world. They get comfortable and they never prepare to meet their God. They've had all the abundances life can offer, but they're paupers in eternity. They have no Christ. They have no righteousness. They have no forgiveness of sins. They have no mercy from God. They have no acceptance before God. They have nothing. We like to say it's not what you know, it's who you know, don't we? As far as advancing in this world, it's true in the next as well, you know. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And you can know all the powerful people and have all your connections, but if you do not have a relationship with Christ, you will perish. But if you're rejected, if you're stepped over because you're left at a gate with nothing, if you have zero in your bank account, if you have no retirement, no family, no friends, no connections, nothing, but you have Christ like Lazarus, an army of angels are going to attend your departure from this world and carry you into the presence of God. Why? Why? Because you have the one connection that matters. You know Christ. Do you know Christ? Please, God, let not this message fall on deaf ears. Let's bow together in prayer. Just before I pray, let me ask you, are you saved? Do you know the Lord? We were thinking of that verse this morning. The Lord is good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all that call upon Him. And so let me remind you of that at this point. To circle back to where we started our day. The Lord is good and ready to forgive. Do you want forgiveness? Do you want to be saved? Do you want a new life? Do you want to begin the Christian journey? Do you want to live for the glory of God and know that peace that passes all understanding? Your sin's forgiven, ready. No matter what happens or when it happens, it will be absent from the body present with the Lord. If you need any counsel, I'll be standing right outside between the two buildings. My office is just across the way. I'd be glad to sit down and talk with you and open the Word and answer your questions and pray with you. Lord, bless your Word. Give grace to repent and turn to Christ. Give that sobriety of mind that helps us realize that there is but a step between me and death. Bring many to Christ. Show mercy, we pray. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God, our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people, none and evermore.